Before there were memes, and I had to look up a little bit to see what a meme is, and don't ask me to explain it because I still am not sure, but, but before there were memes, there were still phrases that made the rounds where, where people would try to make a, a point with a touch of humor to it as well. They, they didn't get around so fast without social media, but through speeches and letters and conferences and occasionally maybe something on television or radio, uh, they, they got around and you'd hear what some people were saying. Some of them like memes, some of them had a broad reference. Some of them more, were more restricted. They all usually uh, circulated more in terms of perhaps a, a specific group, like maybe one was more popular among Southerners and other, another one among Northerners, one among Democrats, one among Republicans, one um, among hippies, and the other among lawyers or something like that. Not sure I've ever heard hippies and lawyers mentioned <laughs> in, right after that, but I'll... Um, anyway, um, and, and there were some, of course, that circulated among preachers and teachers and people who would try to, to, to spread the faith through, through words. One of those that I heard about in those years was this. If you were on trouble, excuse me, if you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? If you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Well, would there? If, if someone had just met you and knew that you had a profession, made a profession of faith in Christ, maybe even that you attended church at that church downtown on Mulberry and First Street, and they didn't know much about you, and they didn't know much about what else you said, but they knew something about the life you lived, would they believe it? Fred Craddock was a magnificent preacher, but I'm going to break his rule this morning. Fred Craddock had a masterful way of preaching a sermon where all through the sermon he was leading his congregation to the, up to the point that they, at the point, at the climax of the sermon, they would have discovered for themselves the point that he was trying to make all along. I'm going to break his rule this morning because I'm going to tell you my point right up front. I want you to hear me say it now. I want you to hear me say it during the sermon. I hope that when you leave the sanctuary today, you remember that it was my point. And just maybe, I hope that sometime during the week, it will make a little bit of difference in how you live. Last week, I talked from this pulpit about the compassion of Jesus. And, and I said, and the reading was from Mark, uh, that in that reading, we saw a, like a little tiny window into the interior life of Jesus. Normally, the gospel writers they don't tell you what Jesus thought or what Jesus felt. They just tell you what he said and what he did. 
But there was a moment in that passage from Mark last week where, where Mark says, Jesus looked at the multitudes and he had compassion on them. An, an unusual glimpse into the interior life of Jesus. And, and after I finished the sermon, I thought, you know, they might have missed the point. Because I talked so much about compassion, they, they might have gotten the idea that compassion is just a feeling. They might have gotten the idea that all Mark was telling us <clears throat> was that Jesus had this feeling of compassion for the multitude. Now, I, I talked about it. Jesus not only felt compassion, he taught them, he healed them, he, uh, he fed them. Today, Jesus also takes the initiative. Jesus is the active one in the story. First of all, he anticipates the need. Instead of the disciples coming to tell him the people are going to be hungry, he tells them they're going to be hungry. He taught the disciples a lesson in how to address problems like that. And then he fed them. His insight was wonderful. His teaching was magnificent. But the climax of the story is that he actually did something to meet the needs of the multitude that were gathered around him. And that made a huge difference in the lives of that multitude. When I was in college, I was in a, a Christian student group, and they we would have retreats every once in a while. Um, students from that group would come from uh, different campuses around the state of Georgia. That most of those folks were Baptists and Presbyterians. They didn't know exactly what to do with me. Um, or maybe it was just the smart aleck comments I, I made. For instance, there was a February retreat at the um, FFA, FHA camp below Covington. It was a frigid night. We had had a wonderful session in the meeting room and we were making our way back to the cabin. And somebody, I don't remember who it was, I don't remember what, what school he was from, he said, you know, this road is really icy. We need to be careful or else somebody could, could slip on the ice and fall into the ditch and break their leg. I said, well, don't worry about it. If that happens, we're going to have cabin prayer time before we go to bed tonight, and we'll all pray for you if that happens to you. He did not seem to appreciate my compassion. He seemed to think that there was something I should do other than go to a cabin prayer time and call his name in prayer. And I think the world outside the church today is not all that interested in hearing us say to the world, we feel your pain. I don't think they're all that interested in hearing us talk about how, how they need help. I think they'd like to see people who are feeding people, who are helping people out of the ditch, who are helping people with, with needs of this, that, or the other. One of my favorite Bible stories, uh, it's in a couple of the Gospels. I remember it from Mark chapter 2. It's the one where, you know, the paralytic is carried up to the up to the roof of the house and the men tear a hole in the roof and let the paralytic down in front of Jesus so he can be healed. I, I said that was really my favorite Bible uh, story when I was growing up because what 10-year-old boy doesn't love a story about climbing up on the roof and tearing stuff up? 
You know, that, that was just, you know, it was just really one of my favorite stories. At the end of that story, there's, there's a phrase that Jesus says, and, and he's really talking to two different people at the same time, so I'm going to paraphrase what, what he said. He turns to the Pharisees and those who are criticizing him for healing uh, in an inappropriate time, and he says, and, they, and thus they are questioning his spiritual identity. And he says to them, so that you may know that I have authority on earth to forgive sins, I'm going to say to this paralytic right here, you stand, rise up, take your bed, and walk. And the man did. It was the deed of healing that validated Jesus' spiritual identity. And I think that when we do things to give evidence of the fact that we claim to be Christians, it gives validity to our spiritual claim as well. I know we love the song, they'll know we are Christians by our love, and I believe it to be true. But they won't know we're Christians simply because we say, I love everybody. They'll, do, they'll say it, they'll know it because they have seen us act out that love. Again, notice how active Jesus is in the story. I also told you last week that in those long uh, days of yore that preachers used to communicate with each other by uh, reading each other's bulletins. We were always looking for some good story or a good quotation uh, that maybe we could use at some point or another. And as I was looking through my notebook uh, this, this week, and by the way, V.L. Daughtry was a mentor in my life. Some of you, of course, remember when he was pastor here. When I was in seminary, he said, every time I, take a, I go to write a sermon, he, he pulled these notebooks off, off, off the shelf, and he said, I look through every notebook to see what, what I might use. And, the, and this is what I was doing this week. I was looking through my notebook, and I found a, uh, it, it said it was from some preacher named Henshaw uh, about, <laughs> and, and, and it said, um, a, 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 a Sunday school teacher asked the class, what's your favorite parable? And the little boy said, I like the one about the multitude that loafs and fishes. Loafs and fishes. I laughed harder when I read it, Creed, than I, I don't understand it. It just lost in translation. Anyway, that Jesus was not loafing, and neither was the multitude. They were pursuing him. They were keeping up with where he was going. They sought him out. He anticipated their need. He served them himself, and they had plenty. They were fully satisfied, and there were even leftovers. I don't think I would have, I don't think I would have survived the years in my parents' home if I had not eaten leftovers. I, I wouldn't want to survive the years eating at my wife's table if we didn't have leftovers. I hear people who say they'd never eat leftovers. I don't understand it. Jesus had leftovers when he, when he fed the 5,000 and, and each uh, disciple will come back to that, had a basket that they filled. The crowd knew his thoughts of love. The crowd knew his feeling of love because he showed them his love. A businessman who was known for his unethical business practices said to Mark Twain, before I die, I'm going to make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. I'm going to climb the Mount Sinai and I'm going to read the Ten Commandments. 
Mark Twain said you'd be better off if you stayed home in Boston and kept the Ten Commandments. Friedrich Nietzsche, the German uh, skeptic, said stop talking, he did, couldn't, didn't have much use for Jesus, he said stop talking about your Redeemer, show me some redeemed people. Gandhi, who did have a great appreciation for Jesus, said to a Methodist missionary, if you people just lived what you read in the Bible, you would take the city by storm. And then there was a, a man of, our, of the 20th century, one of the early leaders of the civil rights movement, Fred Shuttlesworth, who speaking here in Macon uh, one, one, one day said, when we spell faith, we spell it with an F. He said, when God spells faith, he spells it with an O, obedience, because he said obedience is better than sacrifice. And when we do that, the world, take notice, the world will listen to our worlds when we give evidence that we are in fact God's people. Now, you say, how are we to do it? His love is so vast, there's no way we can express it all. There's no way we can fully imitate it. Jesus could, could do miracles. What, what can I do? And to that, John adds a particular detail. Now, all the Gospels tell us that there were loaves and fish involved. And, and as I said last week, this is the, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels. All of them say loaves and fish. It's only John who says a boy here has loaves and fish. And that is what has given rise in our sanctified imagination to see this little boy getting, leaving home in the morning saying, Mom, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go listen to Jesus. And, he, and she packs him a lunch to take off with these loaves and fish. Is John who says they are barley leaves, barley loaves. Barley was often fed to animals in Jesus' time. When bread was made, it was for the, the very poorest of the poor. The fish were not great big channel cat or, or, or you know, fresh caught, wild caught salmon. There were more like sardines there. It was only a little, little bit. Philip had already given up. He said, we can't do anything about this, Lord. Andrew comes very hesitatingly. I'm not, I'm not even sure. I'm not even sure if I need to mention this, but there is a little boy here and he does have five loaves. But what are they among so many? Jesus took them. Jesus took what the little boy had. We are only called to do what we can do. We're only called to give what we can give. Now, I know preachers love dramatic stories. Uh, preachers love to tell the, the big stories about the timid soul who, with a little encouragement, becomes a world-famous opera singer. Preachers love the stories about, like, you know, the college janitor who saved just a little bit from his, uh, from, from his meager salary so that when he retired, he was able to endow a scholarship at the, at the school. Preachers love to tell those. You know why we preachers like to tell those dramatic stories? Because you like hearing them. Because, and, and we need those stories. They are inspirational taken aright, they inspire us to do what, what we can do. But I believe that God hears stories that we cannot know and cannot tell. I think God knows the story that for every one loaf that feeds a multitude, he knows 
story of a multitude of loaves that each one feeds just one. I think for every sermon that converts a thousand people, God knows the story of thousands of quiet words of witness that do good for one heart and one soul. We are only called to do what we can do, but where shall we find the strength? Remember the leftovers. There's, that's evidence of plenty, but it's also evidence of provision for the disciples because they say that each ancient Jew carried a basket with them. Jesus' focus was primarily on the multitude most in need, but remember he had enough for the 12 who were with him and who helped serve those. If he calls you to serve, he will equip you to serve. If you dare enter unfamiliar territory for him, you do so in confidence that he has gone before you. In 1976, two couples left, moved away from Plains, Georgia. One, it was a couple that ran the peanut warehouse. They moved to Washington, D.C. and achieved a certain degree of notoriety. The other, uh, Jerome and Joanne Etheridge, had moved to Plains for him to work at the Agricultural Experiment Station. And when they left Plains, they volunteered to serve in Africa as Baptist missionaries. They were sent to Togo. Three times this week, I've had to look up Togo on my map to see where Togo is. It's bordered by Ghana, Benin, and Burkina Faso. So now you know exactly where, where we're talking about. Togo, the, the Etheridges went to a, a sizable town in Togo and did some language education, didn't seem much, uh, didn't seem to see any dramatic results. So they went back into the back country. It was an area where nature worship was very prominent. Christian missionaries and Muslim missionaries had gone into that area to try to help people understand about monotheistic uh, faith, but neither had been effective. The Etheridges went out there and uh, uh, Jerome Etheridge thought, okay, what can I do? I was, I was an agricultural experiment station worker. So he, he contacted his Baptist supporters back in this country. They sent him a drill. He drilled 130 water wells in that area so that 130 villages had fresh water to drink. That went so well, he talked to his Baptist friends again, and they sent him a bulldozer. And he dug, I think it was, I don't, 21, 21 deep ponds, which would fill up during the rainy season. He then stocked them with fish. So not only did he feed them, as the, as the saying goes, uh, for a brief time, the fish became a self-perpetuating source of, of healthy protein for, for the people. His wife taught health education, built a pharmacy. Gradually, they shared their faith. First with a few, and then the Togolese Christians took, took over, and they spread the faith until by the time Jimmy Carter wrote, them, wrote about them in his book, Living Faith, there, there were uh, 81 churches uh, in that area begun by the Togolese Christians who were influenced by the Etheridges. 
more than a third of all the Baptists in the country live, uh, were in those, uh, in those uh, churches. Now, don't let that be one of those stories. Don't let that be one of those stories that says, well, of course, there Marcus is talk, complaining about those stories, and then he's telling one of them. But let me tell you, the truth about Jerome and Joanne Etheridge, they simply took what they knew. They simply took what they had, and using it, they gave evidence of their faith. And that's all we're called to do. They dug a well. Jesus blessed a simple cup of cold water. Their work started 81 churches. You can help point one person in the right direction this week. You can do what you're called to do as long as you can give evidence that you are, in fact, a Christian.